few years ago, I attended the funeral of one of my uncles. And during that service, my aunt stood up and read a poem. The poem is called Stop All the Clocks. It's a poem about the loss of a loved one. And it ends like this. The stars are not wanted now. Put out every one. Pack up the moon and dismantle the sun. Pour away the ocean and sweep up the wood. For nothing now can ever come to any good. That's a little taste of what it means to grieve without any hope. Maybe you've been to a funeral like that. And maybe you've also been to the funeral of a believer. If you have, the atmosphere was probably very different. Very different from the atmosphere I experienced at my uncle's funeral. What is it that makes the difference? Well, the difference is that the funeral of a believer is filled with hope. Alongside the grief, and the grief is completely appropriate, but alongside the grief, there is also hope because of God's promise for the future. And that future hope is the focus of the passage we're going to look at this evening. In our passage, the Apostle Paul talks about the day of the Lord. That's the term the Bible uses for the day that will bring history as we know it to an end. And Paul wants us to understand three things about this day. It will be a day of resurrection life. It will also be a day of unexpected destruction. And it's a day we must be ready for. So if you haven't already turned there in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll find it on page 1188. And you can see on the screen I'm going to read from chapter 4, 13 through to chapter 5, verse 11. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again. And so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's word, We tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, 
destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. This is God's word. And in this passage, Paul says, the first thing you need to know about the day of the Lord is that it's a day of resurrection life for those who are in Christ. We know from chapter 3 that Paul is desperate to get back to Thessalonica. He wants to see these believers again because he knows that they need more teaching. They've been making good progress, but he knows they need to be built up in their faith and their knowledge of God. And apparently one aspect of the faith that they need help with is God's plan for the future. We know Timothy has brought Paul a report back from Thessalonica. And it seems Paul is responding here to something Timothy has told him. Specifically, it seems these believers are unsure what exactly lies beyond death. That's indicated in chapter 4, verse 13. Brothers and sisters, we do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death, so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. It's hard to be sure what situation exactly Paul is responding to here. But in chapter 1, he said these believers had come out of a background of pagan religion. So they may well have been carrying over some pagan beliefs into their Christian lives. Maybe they thought of the afterlife as some sort of shadowy place. A place that was a definite second best to this life. It could be they thought new life in Christ was only something for this life. That it didn't carry on beyond this life. In that case, the death of a fellow believer would have been a miserable occasion. Without hope. Whatever exactly they were believing, Paul realizes what they need is a solid grasp of genuine Christian hope. And we need it too. Not long ago I was speaking to a pastor who's now helping to lead a church ministry. So he still preaches, but not regularly in the same church. He travels around. And he told me that as he looked back on the years he was in the same church, he said if there was one thing he could do over again, he would preach more about Jesus' return. And I think he's right that when we come together as believers, 
This should be one of the main truths that we think about together and remind ourselves of. As Christians, we need to keep resetting our hope on the world to come. Not so that we can opt out of this world, but so we can truly live well in this world. So we can live lives that are full of hope. Well, now that Paul has explained what his subject is, he goes straight to the ground of our hope for the future, the solid foundation that our hope is based on in verse 14. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. Paul's logic is we know that Jesus didn't stay dead. So we can be sure those who belong to Jesus are not going to stay dead either. Talking about those who have fallen asleep in Jesus is another way of saying they died having put their trust in Jesus. They died belonging to Jesus. Jesus' resurrection guarantees his people's resurrection. Now elsewhere, Paul talks about the experience of believers in that period between their death and their resurrection. He says that in that period, they are with Christ. But they are also waiting for resurrection day. Their current spiritual existence is not the ultimate. They are longing to be clothed with their resurrection bodies. And that will not happen until Christ returns to this earth. In fact, when the New Testament talks about the future, it actually has very little to say about the time between the day of our death and the day of Christ's return. The New Testament's great focus and hope is on the day that Christ comes back, the day of the Lord. And here Paul describes that day, if you look in verse 15. According to the Lord's word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. In verse 15, Paul says he's speaking according to the Lord's word. I take that to mean that he is paraphrasing Jesus' own teaching on this subject. And we can find a lot of that teaching in Matthew chapter 24. And here, according to the Lord's word, Paul says, those who die before Christ's return are not going to miss the party that happens at his return. Those who are still alive at his return will certainly not precede or go ahead of those who have already fallen asleep. So when the Lord himself arrives with all the majesty that will accompany his arrival, the dead in Christ will rise to life. And then together with those who are still alive, as one people of God, from every nation, 
and every generation, we will all be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. And we will be with him forever. Now as we read this, it does raise a question about direction. In other words, verse 16 says, the Lord will come down from heaven. And verse 17 says, his people will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So the question is, if he is coming down and we are going up, where do we end up? I think the rest of the New Testament gives us enough information to answer that question. First, we know there will be one day of the Lord. Jesus is only coming back once. And 2 Peter chapter 3 tells us his return will bring about the destruction of this present heaven and earth. And he will begin his reign in the new heaven and earth. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul tells us the day of Christ's return will also be the day when we will all be changed. The one people of God, made up of those who have never died and those who have been raised to life, that one great people will receive new resurrection bodies. Bodies that are fit for the new heaven and earth. And we can add something else to those details from 2 Peter and 1 Corinthians. Notice here in verse 17, it says, we will meet the Lord in the air. The word translated meet had a specific use in the Greek language. When a dignitary was arriving at a city, this word was used to describe a delegation of citizens who went out from the city to meet him. That delegation from the city would then escort the dignitary back to the city. It was a way of showing honor and respect to the one who was arriving. So if we put all this together, the picture is that as God's people, we will be caught up, but not so that we can take off to some other ethereal place. No, we will be caught up in order to form an escort of honor for our coming king. And for his part, Jesus is not going to come down in order to take off again. He's going to come and begin his eternal reign with his renewed people in the renewed heaven and earth. This picture is also given to us in Revelation chapter 21. And if you were here this morning, it's also the picture we find at the end of Zechariah chapter 9. We're told there that when the Lord returns with the sound of the trumpet, he will save his people and they will sparkle in his land like jewels in a crown. The hope Paul is pointing us to in these verses is the hope the whole Bible consistently points us to. For the man or woman who is in Christ The day of the Lord will be a day of resurrection life. And that's why in verse 18, Paul says to those who are in Christ, encourage one another with these words. We will be with the Lord forever. 
your loved one who died in Christ, will be with you with the Lord forever. And today, as some of us struggle with bodies that are getting weaker, or with betrayal from friends, or maybe alienation from family, we are to let the truth of God's word sink in. We are to say to our souls, be still, my soul. The day is hastening on when we shall be forever with the Lord. When disappointment, grief and fear are gone. Sorrow forgotten. Love's pure joys restored. Be still, my soul. When change and tears are past, in his safe presence we shall meet at last. For those who belong to Christ, the day of the Lord will be the beginning of resurrection life. But it will not be a good day for everyone. There is another side to the day of the Lord. Paul goes on to say that for those outside of Christ, that day will be a day of unexpected destruction. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly, as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. In verse 1, Paul says, I don't need to write to you on the issue of times and dates. That's because he has already taught them about this while he was with them. And Jesus himself had given the definitive answer about the date and time of his return. Jesus said, about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Paul has made that point to the Thessalonians before. But he emphasizes it again here in verse 2. You know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Now when you and I think of a thief in the night, there are several aspects that we could focus on. Thieves tend to come very quietly. And they also tend to come unexpectedly. But the earlier part of our passage made it very clear that Christ is not going to return quietly. Back in chapter 4, verse 16, Paul said, The Lord will come with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet call of God. Even if we allow for some symbolism around the idea of a trumpet, the symbolism is pointing us to a lot of loud noise. And that's the consistent information the Bible gives us. So I have to say, I fail to see how anyone comes up with the idea that the Lord's return is going to be secret and unnoticed. That's the exact opposite of what Scripture tells us. So we know then that the illustration of a thief in the night is not pointing to a quiet return. 
It's pointing us to the unexpectedness of Christ's return. The amount of burglaries in the world would reduce to almost zero if thieves started announcing when they were going to arrive. Thieves are successful because no one knows they're coming. And although Jesus is not coming to rob people, his unexpected return is going to be just as catastrophic for many people. In fact, much more more catastrophic than just a burglary. While people are saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly. We've seen this false sense of security in the book of Zechariah too. God's spies brought back the report that God's enemies were at rest and in peace. They believed they were secure. But the passage went on to tell us it was an artificial peace and security. There was no true peace between them and God. In fact, God is very angry, we were told, with the nations that feel secure. Their sense of peace and safety is just the calm before God's judgment brings destruction on them. And here Paul gives another illustration of what it will be like. Not just like a thief in the night, but he says it will come suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman. Now certainly a pregnant woman knows that labor is coming, but it still tends to come as a surprise. And in a similar way, everyone on this earth is at least dimly aware that this life won't go on forever. We know that at some level. But most people tend to live as if it will go on forever. Jesus himself compared the unexpectedness of his return to an Old Testament event, a very famous Old Testament event. In Matthew 24, he said this, As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For those outside of Christ, the day of the Lord will be a day of unexpected destruction. And by destruction, Paul means final condemnation before God's throne of judgment. Condemnation that leads directly to an eternal separation from God. Separation in a place where Jesus said there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. A place where the fire of destruction never goes out. For those who are outside of Christ, when Christ returns, the destruction that Scripture tells us about is a never-ending destruction. And that reality leads Paul into a challenge. He tells us that the day of the Lord is a day we must be ready for. Look at verse 4. 
But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. Paul contrasts God's people with those who are living in darkness and who belong to the darkness. To be in darkness is to be spiritually in the dark. Not able to see the truth of the gospel. Not able to see the glory and the greatness of Jesus. And those same people who are in darkness also belong to the darkness. They feel quite at home in their distance from God and their opposition to him. In fact, the darkness of sin feels more natural to them than the light of Christ. The men and women who make up the church of Jesus Christ are different. We are children of the light and children of the day. That's our natural habitat. And so the day of Christ's return will be the greatest day for us. Maybe today we often feel like fish out of water in this world. We don't seem to belong. But when Christ returns, we will be like fish in water. We'll be where we do belong, finally. But Paul has a strong challenge for us who belong to the day. His challenge is, don't live like you belong to the night. Verse 6. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be awake and sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. In this whole passage, there's a bit of a play on words with the word sleep. In chapter 4, Paul spoke about those who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning those who have died physically. Those men and women who are currently sleeping the sleep of physical death. But they are spiritually awake. They're with Christ. Here, in chapter 5, Paul uses the word in a different way. He talks about unbelievers who are physically awake, alive, but spiritually asleep, dead. And then Paul describes those same people in another way. They're drunk. And again, this is spiritual drunkenness. People who are drunk are not alert. They're drugged up. They're oblivious to the true nature of things. Some time ago, a book came out called Amusing Ourselves to Death. I think that captures the kind of spiritual drunkenness that many people live in. They're so drugged up on entertainment and distractions that they don't give any consideration to eternal things or the reality of God, or their accountability to God. They're spiritually drunk, amusing themselves to death. One writer puts it like this, to be intoxicated with the world's wine is to be numbed to feeling any fear in the present of a coming judgment. 
That's the reality for many people. But notice why Paul is saying all this. He is challenging believers here not to be like that. So he's saying it is possible to be children of the day and yet begin to live like children of the night. We can fall asleep spiritually. We can begin to get tipsy spiritually. We can begin to get drugged by what this world feeds us. It feeds us a constant 24-hour supply of amusement and distraction. As long ago as 1802, William Wordsworth wrote this. This world is too much with us. Getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. We have given our hearts away. He could have been describing today. And deep down, Maybe we have to say he could have been describing some of us. This world is too much with us. We have given our hearts away. Paul's challenge is Christians wake up and sober up. The day of the Lord's return is a day we must be ready for. And the kind of readiness that Paul has in mind is not, I prayed a prayer once 30 years ago, I accepted Jesus into my heart, so I'm ready, aren't I? There are plenty of people who have prayed prayers and then carried on living in spiritual darkness and death. Genuine conversion results in a changed life. Now, of course, it might be gradual change. It often is gradual change. But if we continue living like spiritual drunks year after year, then we are foolish to feel secure because of some prayer that we prayed once. Now, the kind of readiness that Paul is talking about is expectant living. That's how one writer has put it. When the Bible tells us about the future, it intends that information to change the way we live in the present. Look how Paul describes the expectant living that we're called to in verse 8. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. After describing unbelievers like sleeping drunks, Paul says believers are to be like sentries on guard duty. God has given us armor and we are to wear it. The hope of salvation is a way of talking about the eternal aspect of our salvation. Yes, we are saved and we can say we are saved today through faith in Christ. But the hope of salvation is the hope of being with the Lord forever. And that hope is strengthened by the promises of God's word. 
God's word comes to the spiritually drunk person like a mug of hot coffee or a cold shower. God's word is God's provision for sobering us up. That's why we need it every day. Because every day we have a wave of this world's intoxication washing all over us. And so we need the Bible every day to sober us up every day. Psalm 119 says, The unfolding of your words gives light. It says, Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. We need it to stay sober and to see where we're going in this world. Then faith and love describe the kind of life that spiritually awake, sober people live. Living expectantly does not mean we stand and stare into the sky all day, every day. It means we live the way we would like to be found living when Christ returns. We live like that every day. God has given us clean clothes to wear. Clean clothes that were paid for by his son. And he has given us armor for living in this world. So let's wear what God has given us. Let's keep our eyes fixed on the hope of salvation. And let's live out a life of faith and hope. For, verse 9, God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up, just as in fact you are doing. In verse 10, Paul goes back to speaking about the kind of sleep he was talking about at the end of chapter 4. So he's not saying here in verse 10, whether we are spiritually awake or asleep, we can live with Christ. Now here his point is, whether we are physically alive or dead, if we are in Christ, then the promise of being with him applies to us. If we take this call to expectant living seriously, then whether we are still alive when he returns or whether we die before he returns, we can genuinely look forward to his return. It will genuinely be for us a day of resurrection life. Not because we've earned it, but because he earned it for us. The way to be ready for the day of the Lord is to put our trust in Christ's death and resurrection for us and then to live in expectation of his return for us. Paul closes both of these main sections with a call to encourage one another. And to build each other up. And we are going to close by doing that. As we sing together. We belong to the day. And then there is a day.